Hi, I'm Dr. Tamara Agnew. And I'm Dr. Stephanie Champion. And today we're talking to Professor Kate Douglas, who will talk about her experience doing a PhD, which involved three years of reading traumatic life stories. Welcome to Career Sessions with your hosts, Steph and Tamara. Proudly sponsored by Inspiring South Australia. In this series of career sessions, all of our guests hold doctorates in their chosen field, and we invite them to talk about their pathway from PhD candidate to present day. We ask them what they've learned, and we also ask them to give advice to people who might be thinking about a career in research when they've finished school or when they've finished their undergraduate degree. Kate Douglas is a professor in the College of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences at Flinders University. She is the author of Contesting Childhood, um, autobiography, trauma and memory, and co-author of Life Narratives and Youth Culture, Representation, Agency and Participation. She is the co-editor of Research Methodologies for Autobiography Studies and of Teaching Lives, Contemporary Pedagogies of Life Narratives, of Trauma Tales, Autobiographies of Childhood and Youth, and Trauma Texts. Kate is the head of the steering committee for the International Autobiography Association's Asia-Pacific chapter. A very well-published um, speaker today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Steph. So, Kate, what we're going to start with is just to get an, an understanding of what your role is today and what your normal day looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not, not COVID not, day. Not, not, COVID, <laughs> yeah. not COVID life, but a uh, normal day today. Yeah, I was going to say it's very different post-COVID than, than pre. Um, I've been working at Flinders for 16 years and I think my day has changed a lot um, during that time. Um, it used to be, I guess, a lot of focus on teaching, some research, um, tiny bit of admin um, and now my job is a lot of admin, <laughs> a lot of research um, and a little bit less teaching than I would like to be mm -hmm. doing, to be honest, because I really do enjoy it. But I think the further you kind of accelerate with your career, you spend a lot of time sitting behind your computer answering emails, reading policy documents, attending to funding applications, um, sitting on committees, responding to minutes, responding to agenda items, attending meetings <laughs> and, you know, somewhere in there, um, a bit of teaching, maybe a couple of days a week um, I teach. And um, so that's lectures and tutorials. The most enjoyable part of my job easily because it's that kind of human interaction and it's probably the one thing that you get the most um, immediate kind of feedback from. And research is incredibly enjoyable and I like that as well because um, nice combination of alone time in your office and nice combination of hanging out with friends who are research collaborators mm -hmm. and um, talking about research and formulating plans to do things. So you have a balanced role. I have a balanced role, yes. Yeah. Not always <clears throat> terribly well balanced, but a balanced role. Yeah. yeah. And the balance does shift at different times of the year. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we've just finished teaching, we've just finished semester one. Um, that was, you know, quite a journey this semester. Um, and so probably instantly we get a little, we get a gap between teaching and marking. Mm -hmm. um, so instantly kind of the, the admin, you know, becomes a bit more intense and the research maybe, just maybe you can have a week of accelerating a project or something, mm -hmm. then it's back to marking. Then probably July will be an intensive research period. Mm -hmm. So that's where you are now. So yes. we'll, we'll go back in time yep. to when <clears throat> this your journey for education started. Yep. Um, we're going back to teenage years. Yeah, right. Um, 
try and remember. <laughs> so, um, and just thinking about the decisions that you made <clears throat> before you went to university. So yep. in your family, did your parents go to university? No, no they did not. Um, so my parents, we were migrants from the UK um, and my parents, um, so working class background, mum was a stay-at-home mum, my dad had various jobs, but it was interesting because he came out um, to work in textiles. He worked, came out to work in textiles um, from the north of England. Um, so it was a particular kind of, you know, period of kind of Australian migration, right, where you get these, you know, um, skilled workers from the UK. And so that's what he did. And so, you know, grew up in a kind of large country town in New South Wales, mm-hmm. uh, went to school, um, was good at school. I have one sister who I'll tell you a little bit about her because it's kind of relevant to my journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we were the first people in our family to go to university. And we were both kind of on that path early and I think probably driven by my mother who was mm-hmm. very much, I didn't get to, you know. Oh, experience ad- that. Yeah, I didn't do that stuff and, you know, here's a chance to kind of do that socially mobile thing where working class people become, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> upwardly mobile, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so was also fortunate enough to have a university close by, which was the University of Newcastle in New South Wales. Big shout out to that fantastic university, which I think, you know, made me grow up and really think about what I wanted to believe in, mm-hmm. you know, which was um, the exact things that I believe now and the values that I have now. But yeah, my sister went to university first and that helped me a lot. Did she go to Newcastle as well? She did. Mm-hmm. Um, she studied psychology. She is now professor in psychology at uh, the University of Kent in Canterbury in the UK. So we are. So you guys went hard with the academic. We did. So I was going to say first in family um, to go to university and both professors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Big shoes. Well done. <laughs> yeah, but I also think that she kind of laid a path for me to think that was possible. In some mm-hmm. ways, I think I became because we weren't we were only two years apart, and I think she was sort of wavering on the whole idea of becoming an academic. And as she became interested, I became interested mm. um, because that wasn't that wasn't kind of my pathway when I started university I started in a bachelor of social work and did you know that's what you wanted to do at the time yeah. it was um, because I figured there was no such thing and I heard there was no such thing as an unemployed social worker mm-hmm. so okay. I still had that in mind you know that kind of employment thing and I think mm. this is you know still what we see today about people being very concerned about where the jobs are mm-hmm. right when you what are they going to be at the end of this yeah mm-hmm. and even in yeah. at the end of school but also going you know contemplating university it is that sense of why would you do that you know don't you know all those graduates are unemployed blah 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 so I thought social work I'll do that and I was the youngest person in my degree. It was mostly mature-age students. I was like 18. <laughs> and I used to just look at these, these, you know, really clever older people and go, oh, I'm so dumb. I don't know anything. What do you mean? Like what's, what's left-wing, what's right-wing, what's any of this stuff? I didn't really understand any of it. And they helped me grow up, which was really good. But um, I was really good at English in high school, but I hated it by the end because I did so much of it. Mm. In New South Wales, you have the option of like doing um, an extra kind of unit of English. So... Mm-hmm. Three unit English. Three unit English, <laughs> yeah. Surely there's not nothing like too much of a good thing. Yeah, there was at the time. <laughs> I was like, I was like English burnout. And so I got to a point in my university studies, my social work studies, where I was like, nah, wouldn't it be good if I was doing English? So I did English as an elective mm-hmm. and then worked out, someone explained to me that I could um, pick up a BA and do a combined degree. So I did that. So I did a combined degree, Bachelor of Social Work, Bachelor of Honours. Then I went, oh, I could do, on like, sorry, Bachelor of Social Work, Bachelor mm-hmm. of Arts. And then I went, oh, I could do honours. Mm-hmm. And so I did honours. And then I went, oh, I could do a PhD. And so that's <laughs> when I started looking into the, the PhD thing. Um, and, I, and my sister had already started one. She was at the ANU. Mm-hmm. And so I knew two things were possible. A scholarship was possible, which would mean I could pay for it, pay for it. Um, and that I could go somewhere else, like other than uh, Newcastle and spread my wings a bit. So... 
that's when I started looking into PhD programs and found that the University of Queensland, which is also a very wonderful institution, fantastic. I loved my time there. I had a sense there were a few people there I could have worked with, which mm. I think was important at the time. Um, and the culture and the kind of general strengths of their English department fitted with what I wanted to do, which was I think I wanted to do something around, I wanted to do something about working class writers initially or mm. something to do with multiculturalism or post-colonial literature. So that's kind of why I went there. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up doing something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> so did you go sort of boom, 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 high school, university, honours, PhD? I did. I did. And I think that the, the only advantage of that now as I look part, like look backwards to all the burnout that I now feel, mm. um, is that you know you get to fast track when you're young, you know, because you've got all that energy and and time, and <laughs> like you know, and less responsibility. That's right. Whereas people who do PhDs um, or in undergraduate degrees or any anything study when they've got you know families, it's so much harder. Mm. So I sort of got it all out the way before I had a family, which was really good. Mm-hmm. That was a, a big thing, a big thing. Now, so did you know you were going to do a PhD when you were finishing your honours, or did you uh, like? Did you have a plan early? Was there ever a, no, a point where you finished honours and went, right, now I'm going to be a social worker or that was like, I did it, but I'm not going to do it? Yeah, no, no, I did. I did still think that I would probably be a social worker, um, strangely. And it's funny because all of my interests now I think still relate back to that interest mm. of, in social work and social justice and the kinds of literatures and things that I read about and my interest in trauma and my interest in childhood um, and some of the work that I'm doing now, which is a lot more kind of hands-on literary study stuff. Um, but, no, I think I got to the point where I thought a PhD was just something that I could do because mm-hmm. there was funding, but maybe I would never be an academic. Mm-hmm. And I had that social work degree to fall back on. And I went, well, you know, I could do th- I can do this PhD. And so, yeah, towards the end of honours, I went up to Queensland and did two of my honours coursework topics as cross-institutional studies at UQ mm-hmm. just to suss it out and see if I liked it. Mm-hmm. I really did. Um, and so... That was very strategic. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it was. And... There's always a deeper narrative to why you go into state as well. You know, there's always potential romance or something. Well, let's not go there. Was uh, <laughs> it Brisbane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, University of Queensland in, in St. Lucia, which is a suburb in the burbs of Brisbane, mm-hmm. really beautiful campus. Um, and so, yeah, I think I've got to that point where I went, I could do a PhD and if I get the first class honours, I'll get the scholarship and I'll be on, you know, you think, when back then you think the scholarship's going to be rich and you are <laughs> because you're not paying a mortgage and children. <laughs> In comparison mm-hmm. to what you get on youth allowance. It's yeah. Actually. <laughs> yeah. And so I was really, I was really happy uh, mm-hmm. when I started. But like I said, I started thinking about, I started with different supervisors than the one I ended up with mm-hmm. um, because she just got a job. And I was told when I was going there that this person was coming to, to the university. She got a job there. Her name is Professor Gillian Whitlock. Um, one of the finest academics Australia has ever produced. Um, Shout out, Gillian. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and I knew, she, and they so they said, I know, you know, she's coming to, to to and you can work with her. Like she's, you know, she'll have space for you to work with her if you're interested. And that's when I was like, her big thing. She was sort of she'd done all sorts of really interesting things that I was in, like, you know, deeply engaged in around race and mm-hmm. feminism and postcolonialism. But she was just moving into this autobiography studies, and I wondered. You know, I started to read up a bit more on that and I went, ooh, this is really interesting, like nonfiction, what could be more interesting? And so I met Gillian and she'll tell, she'll, she tells a great story, like, you know, at conference dinners and stuff with me that 
you know, I was so, she had a great idea of a project for me and I was like, no, I want to do that one. I want to do this one on childhood. And she was like, mm, okay. And she still tells that story. Like when we, I met, I met up with her in um, Madrid last year and she's, she still tells that story about, I'm glad you stuck to your guns <laughs> on that. Cause look at you now and the project that you have and you've stuck to this research interest. So, um, it's interesting because in humanities there's a lot more kind of movement, like I think in the sciences, et cetera, there's, you know, you get on a project and that's it. Mm-hmm. Whereas in humanities you, you've still got space to kind of commit. As long as it's in their kind of area of interest, you've still got the possibility of it's convincing them yeah, yeah, that your project is. Going to be good. Yeah. Going to be good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what was your PhD project actually about? What was the research question you were answering? Mm. Um, it was, I think it was around the kind of, back in the sort of mid-90s, early 2000s, many scholars refer to this thing as the autobiography boom or the memoir boom. So this idea that all of a sudden books that might have been kind of, um, I guess, released as fiction, like thinly veiled, you know, autobiographies of fiction because fiction was the thing that's selling and also people then wouldn't get in trouble if they misrepresented something because it's like, what's only novel and you can't, you know, hold me to the truth. Where there was lots of, and, and lots of people from kind of marginal cultural groups, so working class people, women, um, people of colour, like all sorts of different kinds of interests and, and stories were getting told that hadn't been told before. And they were talking about, you know, all of a sudden spaces were becoming available for people to tell stories about their lives um, and, and stories that weren't pleasant to hear mm. necessarily. So I kind of got on board with that idea and and, and started doing like um, so a literary analysis. So I got a, I basically read a, lot, a whole lot of books, a whole lot of memoirs about people representing their traumatic childhoods. Mm-hmm. So I read some, <laughs> I read some <laughs> really, <sounds> fun. <laughs> you can imagine, you know, little Kate. You know, bedtime reading. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like who had you know had no children of my own at that point. Um, reading about you know the horrible stuff happening to children in their mm. childhoods, and so it would usually be they'd grown up and they'd written their narrative, and the narratives would be like I said, mostly published memoirs, but also kind of occupying other different spaces. Like increasingly um, now, we can see these narratives in all sorts of different cultural spaces, mm. and so I sort of thought about you know ethical and legal questions of telling these stories. Um, and so I guess my research question was something along the lines of, you know, how do how do um, kind of contemporary authors tell tell stories about childhood um, in ways that have become kind of acceptable and circulating, like you know, acceptable to circulate, I guess, um, because the, every every narrative needs a reader, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're not going to get read unless people are kind of interested in these narratives in some way. And so the interest can be problematic, right, because it's like, ooh, salacious story of someone's miserable life, you know. Crime sort of stuff. Yeah, or other people are like, oh, I really want to witness and and acknowledge that this stuff happens Mm -hmm. and that, you know, people who talk about their, you know, oh, back in the 50s and 60s, life was great, you know, and these narratives are counter-narratives. But I also read some Stolen Generations narratives and some Forgotten Children narratives. And so it was all that kind of, you know, thinking about the ways in which memoir rewrites history or asks Mm -hmm. us to think differently about Australia's past in that instance. I did a lot of Australian text. So, yeah, it was really interesting. I really enjoyed it. Sounds amazing. It does sound amazing. Um, And you wrote a book. I did. So The Contesting Childhood um, is, that's my PhD. Yeah. So you had your thesis and and you published the thesis as it was or did it require a lot more development? It required a lot of work (laughs) and I had to write an extra chapter and I had to, like, edit the other chapters down to probably by a couple of thousand words each. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was the process. I, I mean, I pretty much didn't contemplate doing that till I got a job and I had time and, you know, someone to kind of, um, even I think I wrote on my first study leave, to be honest, I didn't even get onto it then because I was just so busy with the job and 
like starting an academic job is is just really hard work <laughs> and really time consuming and research suffers. Yeah. Um, research suffers all the time, let's face it. But did, um, did you ever get an opportunity to meet any of the authors that you were? I did. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. I think I spoke to a couple of them on the phone mm-hmm. and I think I met a couple of them at writers' festivals, which was very interesting. And uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did you take to complete your thesis? Um, Tamara, well. This is always a horrible <laughs> question and everyone's very embarrassed. Yeah. No, I'm not. Well, I, I, I have the opposite problem. It sounds like, you know, I completed my PhD in three and a half years. Um, I completed it. I pretty much had completed it in three and a half years, but then I got um, a one-year teaching contract. Mm. And so I was just doing I-dotting and T-crossing. Um, and so I think I stretched it out to about three years, eight months. Yeah. Um, Which is pretty. Wow. It's pretty quick, yeah. And I just, but I just had that. I knew I had that that sort of time, and I because I had to like build a topic and teach for mm-hmm. a year. I I just it slowed a little bit towards the end. But yeah, my progress was. I didn't have any problems. Like you know, I was talking about this this morning to someone. It's like my PhD story is like my childbirth story. I know I had no problems. <laughs> like, you know, no one wants to hear those. No one wants to hear those. Oh, my, we want to hear what went wrong. Yeah, I mean things. You know, it was a slow. It was a slow start because I did change my topic. Mm-hmm. And I, when I say slow start, it was just. You know, it was just that kind of transition to working with a new supervisor. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it took a long time for us to kind of, I think, work each other out. Mm -hmm. Like she's one of the dearest people to me in my whole life now. Like my other colleague who she was also, this is kind of a strange kind of coincidence that I have a colleague at Flinders who also was supervised by her at University of Queensland. Mm -hmm. And and we work together and we collaborate together. Um, And um, we call her Mama Gillian. So (laughs) that's how close we are to her. And, you know, we get really excited. She visits us a lot here and come, like if we ask her to come here, she'll come here and spend time with us. But in the beginning, I think it's hard to kind of work out that relationship. You have Mm -hmm. to kind of, you can be friends later, but in the in the first instance, you've got to kind of. It's a working relationship. Yeah. And you've got to kind of establish a set of expectations and, Mm -hmm. and push for things and they've got to push you and you've got to push them Mm -hmm. for the kind of feedback that you want. Mm -hmm. So it's complicated. So there must be there must have been challenges around <clears throat> the content of what you were reading that must have been how did you keep going or how did you like finish one book and then pick up another one like knowing that a lot of the stories were so traumatic, tra- traumatic yeah and yeah tragic and that's an actual person and they're telling their real life story like yeah it's like a tale of two different versions of the self right because Mm -hmm. I think I could do it then and I couldn't do it now Mm -hmm. um I think I could do it then because I I hadn't experienced being a parent Mm -hmm. and I hadn't um I was you know I certainly was invested in the stories and really interested in them but I was able to detach and think of myself as a you know a researcher yeah doing literature you know and, and that was fine at the time and I think Getting that balance, I did a lot of teaching. I did a lot of research assistant work mm-hmm. um, during that time. And I think just having that kind of balance was really good um, to not just have to sit there and only do that. Like mm-hmm. I've watched PhD students like at my university just do their PhDs, right, and not not much else mm-hmm. like in life, you know, and I always think, oh, I hope that works out for you because <laughs> I really, I really feel like it's it, to, to immerse oneself too much in a PhD is pretty scary experience mm. because you just then live it and breathe it and feel that the pressures and stresses to make this u- unique contribution or whatever it is that you're doing. Mm. But I think it's really good to have other things going on intellectually as well as socially and emotionally, like intellectually just have other things that distract you. Mm-hmm. And what about exciting things that happened during your PhD journey? Lots of exciting things happened, Steph. <laughs> um, like I think because I had a really, uh, I had a, because again, I'm just 
raving about my excellent supervisor. <laughs> but we had a really good research culture at University mm. of Queensland. Like it's probably the the best university f- in Australia for what I did. Easily the best. What am I talking about? And um, <clears throat> so you you got those kinds of professional opportunities mm. that were probably not as available at other universities. So starting with the scholarship. And then we had prizes, like you publish an article, you mm. could put yourself in for a prize. We would have, um, you know, like a casual teaching prize. I got a scholarship to do a grad cert in education um, so I could have that and that was good because that got me out of doing it when I got to Flinders. Yeah. <laughs> um, and any of the courses they they recommended we had to do for professional mm-hmm. development. Um, I got to go to conferences. Um, I went to Toronto for a conference. I went to Auckland for a conference. I went to London for a conference. Yeah, I mean, I had some really, really great opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it was because I was picking up that, those bits of money along the way, like yeah. little bits of extra money, like I said, prizes and things like that and, and um, research assistant work. I remember taking my associate supervisor's books back to the library for mm-hmm. her. <laughs> that was the most menial of the things that I did, yeah. um, photocopying, all that kind of stuff. But I was always thinking, oh, it's be good because this is good travel money, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I was very focused on. I was very focused on the travel. I loved the travel. I loved that. I loved presenting. It was good because my PhD supervisor was often there um, at these conferences, and she, they, they kind of offer you some level of protection, which I can now see myself doing with my students, mm-hmm. which is really nice. And it gives you confidence to go out and do that uh, because part of being an academic is being able to present at conferences and to promote yeah. yourself. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a big thing now and I look at the differences now because now it's like social media promotion. Mm-hmm. Like I see my, I've got two really fantastic PhD students who um, work quite closely together and, and keep each other accountable for this stuff, but they're very good with that. They've mm-hmm. done library talks like during their candidature. They've, they've, they've got good social media stuff going on like Instagram, Twitter. Like they're just really kind of engaged. One of mm-hmm. them just did a conversation article. Like it's just, no, they just get it a bit like I think in terms of that the importance of that professionalisation. I think I was probably the first generation who kind of got that, the pressure to do that, mm-hmm. um, whereas I think before it was, yeah, just do your PhD. You know. It's not enough to just immerse yourself in one project. Yeah, sit in a book and, you know, rub your temple and, you know, do those things. <laughs> like, you know, like it's just we don't, we, we just, that's just not the culture anymore. Mm. Like that's it, kind of good and bad, like, you know. Especially you get a very well-rounded <clears throat> um, PhD completers now. Yeah. Um, but all the pressure to do yeah. all that extra things as well as produce yep. a PhD. Yeah. Um, but you obviously had a lot of opportunity to share your work during your PhD. So in addition to having that book, you also had a platform to yeah. speak. Yeah, So um, this is always uh, it's a big question, but why is your research important and, and how does that influence the wider world? I'm a, you know, I'm a big believer in um the fact that all different disciplines, like I look, what's great about a university is you have all these different disciplines and the, and the minute they have a conversation, which is very rarely, like, you know, like cross-disciplinary conversations, you realise how much you have to learn from each other. Mm. And you can only see this kind of in a microcosm when you look at like primary school education, when you see these teachers who have this generic knowledge that they can bring in and get the students to do something because they understand humanities, they understand maths, they understand science, right? Mm. And they can br- bring all that together and allow children to really learn. Um, and then all of a sudden we become these little specialised people in, over in this space where I know about this thing. Uh, and I think unless you're willing to, the, the only way you'll see the value in your research is the moment you communicate it to other people yeah. um, and allow it to kind of, I guess, um, mix in with with other kinds of disciplinary knowledges on the same thing. Like, so for example, like I read interdisciplinary research on the child, right? 
So that would be the thing that I'm most interested in the moment. So you've got sociologists, you've got lawyers working in, you know, childhood area, you know, doctors, um, all different kinds of doctors, you know, all different kinds of welfare workers, whatever, um, and educators and then academics in all different kinds of disciplines. And I always think that, you know, the kind of observations that I make about how people represent childhood um, publicly or how children, what I'm most interested in the moment is how children tell stories, true stories about their own lives um, in kind of private and public spaces. Um, I, I think that people don't always think about the relationship to that, between that and their mental health, their physical health, mm. all of those kinds of things that I think until you start unpicking it a little bit and saying we all have this knowledge that kind of adds up to something together, um, you won't see the value in what you do. Mm. You'll just think that you're in the some kind of little, little bubble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's interesting because <clears throat> people, yeah, they're in their little silo that, that mm. they, they, don't, they don't actually have all the answers. Even though sometimes I think they do. <laughs> yeah, well, it is a real part. We're a part of this knowledge system, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that that's really exciting. <laughs> like, you know, more exciting than, than just I found something by myself yeah. and, and only five people in the world. I mean, this was an academic model that used to be a thing, you know, only seven people could read this and understand it, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> like, well, what's the point oh, that of that like then? good value. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, if you're in certain fields, like I, that I won't name names, there's probably still lots of scholars who want to be like that. Mm. Um, to be the just, world expert. Yeah, but it's just not going to wash. This mm-hmm. is not, you're not going to get it. You're not going to start a career in academia with that in that space. Maybe there's people at the top who are on their way out with that. Um, super, super famous people who work at, you know, Oxford or Harvard mm-hmm. or something. But that's that's about it. It's, out, it's going out, sadly. And so from your um, experience as being a, a, as a PhD student and as a supervisor, what is the um, – how would you describe the life of a PhD student? Mm, good question, Tamara. I think it's very different now than it was. I mean, like I said, I think I was on the cusp of that, you know, you must professionalise, you must see the PhD as just – part of a system of of skills and knowledge that you need to come out of this degree with. Like, whereas, you know, this is a thesis, right? A thesis mm. is just, a thesis is a piece of research, right? Whereas now I think a thesis is just part of this a, a system, a PhD system, which requires, you know, a whole lot of other elements to come together. Like I did, all, like I said, I did all those things in some ways that this, you know, teaching and RA work and conferences, which I think helps my PhD students now. But um, I think they all accept that the job market, if you if you articulate, and I think you should, like I always say to my PhD students, articulate to me if you want to be an academic and I'll do everything I can to help you. The only thing we can't control is, is there a job mm. going to be advertised? Is there a pandemic? We can certainly <laughs> we can certainly get you to, I always refer to it as to the front of the line, right? Mm-hmm. And that was my preoccupation because there were hardly any jobs when I graduated. This was 16 years ago. Um, and I just focused on that getting to the front of the line, getting to the front of the line. And uh, I had a PhD student who got a, a, a really great job um, a couple of years ago. And I said the same to her, you know, it's front of the line, front of the line. And she did, you know, and we just we just focused on, in a sense, it's a bit like a skills checklist or a mm. tick box. But even the university does that now with the, they have a, an online system where the students are supposed to fill all those things in. Like, mm-hmm. what did Identify you do? Identify your gaps. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and fill them, you know, yeah. and, and, and attribute time to professional development and attribute time to... You know all the things that you think are going to make you job ready. Yeah. So when that job does arise, you are competitive. Yeah. And and I guess the good news in all of that is if that job doesn't come and another job does, Mm -hmm. you you're going to be in a good position to articulate what they refer to as transferable skills. (laughs) Right. So you know the idea is, but I can do all of those things. And they might look at a job ad and go, oh, I can do all of those things. Yeah. Of course I can. Mm -hmm. Just got to just turn them around a little bit. Yeah. And it all sounds very buzzy to call it. 
transferable skills, but the reality <clears throat> is that they are helpful. Yeah. To be able to know how to explain what you can do. Yep. Yeah. And the big one is project management. You know, yeah. I, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've basically managed a project that maybe involved, you know, ethics clearance, doing interviews, mm-hmm. working with, you know, different kinds of kind of discourse, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of information, how do, how do you access it, let alone obvious stuff around research skills and writing skills and communication skills. Critical thinking. Yeah. 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 But I think that project management, I think if you can articulate what that actually is, mm-hmm. you, you're going to be in really good shape for something. So... <laughs> You work in academia, Mm -hmm. but you could have translated those skills to a job outside of academia. Yeah. Can you imagine what that would look like? Like did you ever consider leaving the university sphere and and finding a job outside of a university? Yes, often, sadly. (laughs) Um, So we had a restructure a couple of years ago and it left a lot of us feeling very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I think the sector, you know, with stuff that's happened with COVID, you know, like a lot of universities are, you know, articulating very specific monetary losses, like University of New South Wales mm. articulated two hundred and fifty million huge losses. You know, Flinders, and they translate into people. Yeah, and mm. Flinders has articulated a much lower number, um, but still been very clear that this is going to result in in job cuts. Um, and it was like you know across all levels. They always say that just to make sure no one's feeling comfortable, right? <laughs> um, or at least make the most vulnerable feel a little bit more protected. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so and so when we had the restructure, even this is before COVID. I mean, it was a really, really traumatic time. Mm. I think for lots of people working at Flinders and other universities have been through much the same. And so you were, you know, it was the first time you think you're doing this job that's just going to keep on keeping on. That you're making a contribution. That you're going home. You're feeling good. Um, and then it was like that was the first time I really faced up to the fact that I wasn't going to turn my toes up in academia, right? Yeah. And it was funny. The hardest bit for me was that I still have, you know, twenty plus years of working, mm. right? So it's like that's a long time, you know, with responsibilities. I have three children. Um, and it's just, you know, it's that stuff that you just think, okay, I have to be pragmatic right now. And I did and I sat there for a long time and I looked at, you know, job ads and stuff like that. And, you know, your obvious thing is, you know, move to another university. Mm. There's practically it's no jobs. Same. Move, yeah. make, make kind of a cross movement towards some kind of um, management or administrative job. Um, that does not spark joy for mm. me personally. <laughs> the thought of that—it's just not really me. Like no. I'm just much more of a um, a people person, and mm. I just can't really imagine ever being that person who occupies that space, no matter how much it pays. Yeah. Um, and so I really spent a lot of time thinking about what was what was the closest thing to what I did, and I came up with um, being a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And I think and I always say that if I had my time over, maybe I would have done this or maybe I would have been a primary school teacher. I don't know why primary school. <laughs> I just really wanted to do primary school. Um, and then I thought that's just not practical because that's too much, like, mm. too much retraining. So I thought I'll just, I would just be a high school English teacher. Um, and I actually started a master's degree. Mm. And so I have a fallback. <laughs> Which is which is seems, would you have considered teaching if you hadn't done tutoring and and lecturing during your PhD? I think I probably would have. I think anybody who really likes, you know, working with people and ideas and doesn't mind a lot of reading and studying and and all those kinds of things would always consider teaching. Mm. I think teaching was just such a wonderful thing. Mm. Like I, I think it's the thing that does bring me the most joy in my job. I love my research too. Don't get me wrong. Um, and teaching has so many challenges associated with it. Oh, yes, so many. But somehow I always still come out of it feeling kind of happy. Yeah. <laughs> you made a difference. Yeah, and they're not bad. You know, young people today are just there's a lot going on and it's kind of really interesting to observe, I mm. think. 
Um, I wouldn't want to be a teenager now. No, I wouldn't either. Not a teenager That's the one thing I have media. really learned yeah. from uh, being a teacher and having teenagers also. Yeah. Um, <laughs> lots of conversations about that between Tamara and I. Yes. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's, it's I don't know. Te- yeah, I mean, I think, and, oh, for me, the other thing I was going to say is I don't think um, I could, you were saying about what you, you were asking before about what's the point of your research and mm. what's the value of it taking it back into your teaching is a huge value. Mm. You know, like mm. you, you you literally walk out of your office and walk into a classroom and then you're sharing your ideas and mm. the things that, that matter to you and the things that you've noticed and you want to see if the students are interested too. And they will be because you are, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's to me a, a really simple way we, we share our research. And An immediate other, translation into practice. Yeah, and it goes the other way too. Like, you know, you come out of your teaching, you've, you've explored a few ideas with the students, all of a sudden, you know. Ding, ding, alarm bells. Back to the office, yeah. <laughs> writing again. Um, yeah. Just because they've just opened, they've opened up different pathways of thinking, different angles, mm. pr- you know, giving you a prod and it's great. So would you... Would you, uh, given your hindsight and all the years that have passed, would you do your PhD again? Yes. Yeah, yes. definitely. I loved it. I enjoyed it. And I think, if you, you know, if you can, you have to have multiple reasons for doing it. And I always say this to mine. Um, if your reason is to be an academic, some people get to be academics. So why not? Why not strive for that if that's mm. what you really want? You, I wouldn't say, I, I would be, you know, Encourage people to have open eyes about it because it really is hard. It's hard to kind of keep you get up another morning and you've just got to, it's like pushing your body to the limits, mm-hmm. pushing your brain to the limits, the same sort of thing, right? It's hard work. It's, it's not a sprint. <laughs> no, no. And um, and I think I've learned a lot by observing. I think I draw, draw a lot more on your communities to get your support in the way that you're going to get it at the university, for example, like get, you know, make friends with people who are doing PhDs. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'd definitely do it again. And I would do it again even if I knew that the outcome wasn't an academic job because I think it's an amazing thing to have. Mm-hmm. I'm like a, one of those people that really likes studying. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy Writing. I enjoy the studying too. I think the, uh, if I had uh, didn't maybe didn't have a seven-year-old. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. I like to still find out, like just even just answering emails and getting disturbed is hard enough, <laughs> let alone trying to produce this, trying to work. this, this big thing, right? <laughs> Um, so when you were doing your PhD, you had a plan for a pathway into academia that was... Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I definitely thought it was... I, I, I believed it was possible all the way through. And you managed to pick up a teaching role while you were still... Yeah, and so that made a big difference too. And I had a big name international scholar behind me who wrote me a beautiful reference and, and, and those kinds of things and also knew the people. Like when I fronted up at Flinders... She knew these people. She was just like, mm. oh, and they're like, oh, you're, you know, you're one of Jillian's. And I'm like, yeah. And so that, you know, that, that, meant, stuff, something. that meant something and it still does, unfortunately. Fortunately, unfortunately, have we have everyone look at it. Um, but, yeah, I think I had I had all the boxes ticked. Mm-hmm. So I, I hadn't, you know, I, I was walking into a job, um, a level B position at Flinders that I met all the criteria for. And, and, and you know what? Like the criteria now is probably harder than that <laughs> was 16 years ago because they do say things like success in grants. And it's like no one's going to have that. No, you know? not when fresh out of a university. Except oh. now that there's, pe- there's people been knocking around for like seven years with a PhD who, who might apply for that job and they're mm. going to have that experience, mm. right? So the, you, you don't know who you're competing against when you apply for a job. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I got really lucky because there's an element of luck. Right job, right time. Mm-hmm. Like I'd literally just done my revisions on my PhD and the job was advertised and I interviewed for it and I started in January. So this was like submission July, revisions October. Mm-hmm. 
you know, a job interview November starting in January. Yeah. That never happens. It's serendipitous. That's, yeah. 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 Um, so knowing everything you know about PhDs, what would you say a PhD is? I think it's just an, a, a great opportunity to pursue research at its highest level. Mm. You you will do, if people walk into any kind of job, they'll be asked to work on projects Um and those projects might be quite small um, or, you know, middle-sized or whatever. But with this PhD, you've got this big thing, right? And, it, and you get to make it whatever you want to make it as long as it fits that original contribution to knowledge, which is the expectation. And so it is the, it's probably the, the, the biggest project that an individual will ever do. Mm-hmm. Out in the workforce, you'll do something, you know, you'll have about five people on a project yeah. that might be, you know, the same sort of size. It's a real opportunity to kind of just develop a skill in that big project management that you'll never you'll never get that opportunity if you don't do a PhD. Mm. You'll never stretch your brain in a way that, you know, <laughs> that a PhD <laughs> will. Force I don't, I don't do. No. Yeah. And also learn how to, like, be able to pivot and make changes and, mm. and mm. be resilient. Oh, know? and accepting feedback. So this is the other oh, thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's a really hard thing. And I think people go through life and all of a sudden they, they get into this space where they have to accept feedback and they don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you've been a PhD student, <laughs> you've, you've had, got it. You've had all your darlings killed, right? You, know, like, you wrote this whole chapter and it was like, oh, I think this is great. And your supervisor's like, it's not working. Yeah. What do you mean? It's just a few changes <laughs> and you open it up and you go, oh. You know, in, in science, there's whole studies that get thrown out, like yeah. it just didn't work mm. or just, you know, and in, in, in humanities, you know, social science is just, you know, a, a, a line of argument that's just not persuasive or it's not working. It's like. Out. I think it was one of the more defining moments of my PhD was I submitted a chapter that was 60 pages, which was never going, but I naively thought every word is valuable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I got back was 15 pages. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, oh, an entire avenue of research has been cut. And on hindsight, I could see it wasn't yeah. useful, but yeah. as a PhD, I was very precious about what I wrote. So and you just have to learn how to pick yourself up and go, right, yeah. okay, yeah. so super valuable Take skills. what you can yeah. from it and move on. But yeah. also trust that person. You know, if, if you're working with someone, there is a trust because I've seen people, you know, push back against supervisors and go, I think they're wrong. <laughs> like, you know, and it's like, well, I don't know, maybe have a look, get your associate supervisor to have a look or something, get another opinion, like, you know, if you want to. But it's it's tough because it's such a skill and it's so valuable just to sit there while someone tells you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's nope. wrong with something you've <laughs> yeah. done? You know, very valuable. Yeah. So you've already talked about what is necessary for a person to be able to undertake a PhD, but what if somebody was asking you, what advice do you give somebody who's who's about to graduate from their undergraduate degree and who might be contemplating some kind of postgraduate course? Mm. What do you say to them about uh, if they're asking you? Yeah, this I is do a PhD? this is my reality very often, right? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting because I do have this conversation with colleagues, and we've we've had a conversation recently about how to let people down gently, because there's some people it's just like we can see we can see it's not going to happen, mm-hmm. um, and so we've we've worked out some little, you know, speeches <laughs> that, we, that we're going to make, and they usually relate to, you know, having a bit of a think about whether or not now's the right time, mm-hmm. based on the fact that. You know, uh, like you kind of ask them to ask questions about, you know, what kinds of feedback you, you've, you have you been, because sometimes it's your own honours student or your own undergraduate who you've might what kinds of feedback have you received? Do you think that, you know, you're all of a sudden going to be able to make that leap based on the fact that you've got these kinds of problems with your writing at the moment or mm. in constructing arguments or meeting deadlines or whatever it is? I think you kind of have to ask them those questions about, 
do you think these things add up to, to that? <laughs> like, yeah. And it's like if it doesn't, then let's let's wait for a bit. Um, and others and, you know, the ones who, so I think that maybe the hardest ones are the ones in the middle that you think maybe. Mm. Do you give ones, them that chance even though you know yeah. they might be dedicating three years and yeah, not there's, Yeah, there's others a clear cut that you go, please come along, do it, right? Mm-hmm. And then the others are no, no way. But yeah, the other ones that are a bit like, um, Grey yeah. zone. Yeah, <laughs> and they maybe. may be doing, they, you know, they may be not getting high distinctions often enough or they got a 2A honours and you think, well, they could if they really work hard. And you, that's the bit you don't know because you haven't really seen them. You've seen them work hard maybe mm-hmm. for a year, but you're not really sure where that's going to translate to that. That slog of a PhD. Yeah. So I guess it's just then asking a lot of questions around, do you, you know, do you think, what do you think about this stuff? Mm-hmm. And also the other issue it, that increasingly is a concern for us is students' mental health. Mm. So it's really exciting at the beginning when you start a PhD, you know, <laughs> and they're, and they're, and you're walking around, yeah, I'm a PhD student, this is great. I got a scholarship. Yeah, and, and all the good stuff is, yeah, is there at the front and all the potential and all the possibility. And, yeah, it breaks down, if it breaks down reasonably quickly in terms of you get some feedback that's pretty horrific or other PhD students, like they're moving quicker or you get sick or whatever it is that happens. You don't get accepted to a conference or someone's mean to a conference or <laughs> yeah. there's something happens that kind of bursts your bubble. I do worry. I do worry about how robust a, a person is and where they can do it. And mm. so I'm always second-guessing that stuff. And you can't really talk to students about that. So it's a, that's a decision for them to make. But I've seen students fall apart too mm. often for me not to think about how I can address that. I'm just not sure. Mm. Not really sure because it's super common. And what about, uh, so as a, a mum of teenagers, yeah. <laughs> the kids that are leaving school now um, or making decisions about their senior school subjects and the pressures to make decisions about what happens next, what do you say to them? Yeah, and I feel like I've had these conversations a lot lately and I feel like COVID's thrown us all a, a mm. new curveball, right, mm-hmm. because now we've seen for the first time who was still working and who wasn't mm-hmm. when a pandemic hit and who was especially um, working, having to work ridiculously hard or whatever mm-hmm. whatever the thing is. And so I don't know, I had that conversation with my teenagers and I think I'd had that conversation um, with any school leaver about you've got to find that balance between, um, again, what sparks joy, what the kind of thing that mm-hmm. you're going to feel excited and passionate about going forward, but also uh, I think you should people should be pragmatic about the future and think about, Good work, right? We all want to do good work and our, and our possible contribution that we're going to make to the world is important and that will make us feel good about ourselves. <laughs> I don't mean to sound too reductive when I say that, but I do think it's important to start thinking about that early. And everyone makes a con- my, you know, My eldest works at McDonald's and she's made a particularly important contribution during this pandemic, <laughs> lots of working hours and lots yeah. of dealing with, you know, all sorts of interesting people, uh-huh. but had to just keep working, you know, and, and it's just interesting to see um, you know, how we might reflect on that. But, yeah, I think my, both of my teenagers are, are really looking pragmatically now. I think mm. they'll still enjoy the choices that they've made. Um, one wants to be a nurse and one wants to join the forces. But I do think this these decisions are now, like, I'm pretty happy about them. I'm very, I feel secure about these choices, mm-hmm. you know, because you just don't, you, you do want to send people into a certain world and degrees are, you know, complex in terms of your relationship to them and what they're going to give you in the end, you know, mm. in terms of you might put in, a certain amount you want to get back what you've put in. Yeah. Mm. So, have you ever been led to sort of do this reflection on your PhD before? 
No, not really. <laughs> That's really interesting. And do you know where your PhD thesis is? Where it is? Yeah. Can you, could you locate it in your house? It's in my office. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Does it get much of a showing these days? I do sometimes get it out and show because now they don't exist in hard copy. They're all electronic now. Yeah, yeah I don't. I have a. I have a softback version of it for... Um, you must get that bound. <clears throat> I really have to. <laughs> it's kind of looks... Yeah, I mean, it's kind of cute because they all exist in that. They look like they all look the same, you mm-hmm. know, in the way they're printed and stuff. Um, yeah, they're all printed the same size, same... Yeah, you know, they all, all look... The they, you can color. choose the Although colour, someone yeah. someone came yeah. yesterday with one about that big, just, just a tiny, thin... Mm. It was like, wow, I have never seen a thesis that small. That's amazing. Some are printed on every second page and some are printed, like, back and... Like, yeah, back to back. Yeah, and oh, so yeah. They, I noticed that on some that I, I went, why is it so big? And they were like, <laughs> oh, it's printed on every second. I was like, okay. Yeah, and two-thirds of that is appendix. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought it's a kind of... It's a nice artefact to have yeah. because, I mean, I've got, a few, I've got, like, a few because I had copies of ones this is back oh, in the day of your students. yeah yeah but i'm thinking probably won't have those now i'll have to wait until it becomes a book so the the most exciting thing for me was when my one of my phd students got her book published mm. and i got a copy of that and that was really cool mm. you know um and I still get a thrill about getting in acknowledgements and stuff like that yeah. of other people's. Like I, <laughs> I like, get that because like, people do tend to like let you know, or, or, or sometimes it comes as a surprise when you get the book and you go, yeah. "Oh, that's really cool." Mm-hmm. Um, so that's nice. You know, it's a nice thing to have, and I think it, it kind of exists as an artifact in my office. And like I said, I have a little shelf of them. Okay. Yeah. And All so right. we've got. I've got one more question before the final question, and that is, would you write your own memoir? I have been doing some writing. <laughs> like I've been writing, I wrote a story. I should send it to you, actually. Mm-hmm. I wrote a story about, um, so the stories I want to write always relate to travel. So I wrote a little travel story, which was like a travel memoir, mm-hmm. but it was about um, a family holiday in the Northern Territory and watching your kids, like kind of being hyper aware of the fact that your kids are growing up before your eyes. Mm-hmm. All right. So that was one. All right. So I, I feel like I will write not my memoir because I just, I don't know. I, I think the fragments are so much more interesting. Observations. Than the and- whole, and so moments from life. Yeah, will be what I write, and I've only written short stuff mm-hmm. because creative writing's really hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like academic writing, yeah, any day of the week is fine. And uh, but creative writing, I remember saying to one of my colleagues who's a creative writer, I was like, "Oh, this is so hard. It just takes up so much time and concentration." And she just laughed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I definitely. So I was working on something when everything fell apart. I was almost finished another story, which was about this particular uh, piazza in Florence, and a- again, a moment with my family that we spent there. Um, and I didn't. I haven't finished it because I'm just really struggling to yeah. to find that. I can't. There's no. There's been no quiet space in my house. There's <laughs> never. I've. N- I have not been home alone mm. for months. No, I know. I know that. Feeling. And so you can't. I need to be home alone. I can't really get. My, I'm supposed to go to my office, but I just don't really want to go on campus. So I don't have to. <laughs> um, so last question um, is myths about PhDs. Mm-hmm. So there are myths about PhDs and about academic life. Yeah. Um, can you pick one to put a pin in it and say that isn't true? Yeah, I've got a good, I've got a, you know, I did. I only sort of skim read these questions, right, and that was the one that I went, right, I'm, I've <laughs> got, got one. you got something to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, that um, the, the academics don't work hard. Mm. Right, they go to conferences. It's like a holiday, They're swanning around, and- swanning around with their flexible workloads. <laughs> and it's funny because a couple of colleagues um, and I decided to quantify our working hours last year, and we got a real shock. But don't, don't, don't count that. You know, we got a real shock because yeah. it was a sense of you know, if only to have a job with regular working hours because the flexibility. 
um, results in highly. I mean, it's, it's either exploitative or self-exploitative. Yeah. Possibly it bleeds into every yeah. aspect. And you do, and you find yourself going, oh, I've just got some time, I'll just do that. So I just, I feel like um, I would like to see fewer academics who are workaholics yeah. um, because I think that's the problem, not, not, you not know, the other side. Not, the, not, not the, swanning around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and like people are like, oh, look at you. When I saw photos of myself at conferences, of course I'm not going to put a photo of me. No, I do now. Mm. Photos of me presenting papers is yeah. what I put on Facebook because I'm like, you know. This is the reality. This is the reality because, like, the rest of the time, of course, you're going to put a picture of you, you know, at a monument or seeing some beautiful, something beautiful. Oh, look at you working again. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and I, I just got a bit tired of those comments. I know they weren't personal or mean, <laughs> but I did get tired of them. So, yeah. Yeah, because like, you, you jump on an international flight, and and most mums can go, oh, this is my this is my like three hours of oh having no children. God. But now yep. you're on the going, driving away. No movies for me. Yeah, I would just like this is uninterrupted work time. How exciting! And then I'd reward myself with a half an hour episode of some TV show that I've been busting to watch for three years. But it's just like, um, yeah, it just it's it troubles me because I don't think it's healthy for people to then internalize that those feelings. And I think I was doing that, and I was, and it was making me work harder. Like I'll prove to you, you guys that I'm I'm not swanning. I've not swanning. I'll work and work and work and work. And so I think I did develop and have developed a lot of unhealthy behaviours as a result of that stereotype. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. we are out of time. So. Totally out of time. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. That was a very interesting um, PhD journey to lead us through. Really, thank you, Steph. Thank, thank you, you so much for your time. The very last thing that we should end with is a huge thank you to all of the people who came and gave their time to be interviewed for this podcast series. It's very generous. It was very generous of them and it was so fascinating. And after every interview, I felt so inspired <laughs> to be a researcher and, and to use my PhD. So it was a very eye-opening experience and a, um, a, a really interesting experience. Yes, and we're really very grateful to yeah. every single one of them. But we're also especially grateful to Dr. Sharon Pittman for yeah, telling who us, gave us the, about the, grant. <laughs> the inside story about the grant. Yes. yes, she gave us the inside story about the grant that we applied for and we got, which supported um, the production of this podcast. So thank you to Inspiring South Australia and to Sharon Uh, for your very generous um, support of our podcast. Thanks for listening to Career Sessions with Dr. Stephanie Champion and Dr. Tamara Agnew. If you like the show and want to know more, check out www.careersessions.com where you can send us your suggestions for future series and subscribe so you know when a new episode is posted. If you love it, tell all your friends and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks to our sponsor, Inspiring South Australia, for their generous support, and to our producer, Rory, at Podbooth. Join us next time when we talk careers with another leader in the field.